0: Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, then I invite you, please, to open them up to Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. And this morning, we're going to move through a, a large portion of Scripture going on all the way until the end of chapter 11. So chapter 10 and 11 of Revelation. And uh, believe it or not, this is actually the most challenging section of the entire book to interpret, at least from 10.1 till 11.14. No matter what approach you take to the book, this passage is, is difficult. The point's hard to pin down, but uh, it's not impossible and it's not unimportant either. It is part of the Bible, and so it's an important message that the Lord wants us to know and understand and to live by. Sometimes when we approach Scripture, we can say, well, this is kind of hard to understand, so it really must not be that important. Well, that's not true. The Lord's given it in His Word. There's something there for us to see and to understand and to know and to live by. And so... When we approach this passage that is difficult this morning, we're going to approach it with the mindset that says, the Lord gave this to me, He wants me to understand it, He wants me to know what it says, and He wants me to live accordingly. And as we go through it, we're not going to get into all of the details. Again, it's a large passage, there's enough details to get lost in very easily. But if we stick to the main points, and we see how the details fill these points in, I think we'll be in safe ground. And, uh, and this, difficult passage will become much easier to understand. So let's begin in chapter 10, Revelation 10, 1-11. And I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring when he called out the seven thunders sounded and when the seven thunders had sounded I was about to write but I heard a voice from heaven saying seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing unseen on, on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told... You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Well, Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for being with us this morning. And I pray that You would help us to understand Your Word and to appreciate You and to love You better than we do. Lord, You know the need of every person in this room. Lord, You know what Your church needs to hear. You know how we ought to live. You know how we ought to think. And I pray, Lord, that You would be at work this morning transforming us and and changing us and molding us to make us like Jesus Christ. That when we walk out the door in an hour, we will not be the same people who walked in but that by degrees, Lord, You would be pruning us and changing us and making us like Your Son. I pray that You would help me to preach, Lord, that Your Word would not fall to the ground void. Lord, we know that it won't because You promised that it won't. And so I pray, Lord, that You would help us. And it's in Your name we pray, and it's to You we look. Amen. Amen. Well, this scene is the second in the sixth trumpet. You remember uh, last week, the vision began with the army, uh, the arrival of the army of the Lord to judge and to kill the worldly. Well, here, John sees in his vision a Colossus standing with, with uh, one foot in the land and one foot in the sea. And then the third vision that will come will be the two witnesses. Now, I want you to think about something as we make our way through this passage. Is there any one thing that all of these scenes have in common? Is there one thought or idea that unifies this sixth trumpet? Well, there is. And it is the spoken word. That's what unites this trumpet, these three scenes. With the Lion Riders... Where was their power? Do you remember? You say it was in their tails. Yes, but first, their power was in their mouths. And the plague, the fire, and the sulfur, and the smoke, it came from their mouths, didn't it? It reminds us of 2 Thessalonians 2.8 where God tells us how He's going to deal with His enemies. The man of lawlessness is killed by the breath of the Lord's mouth. And of course, this doesn't mean that the Lord just you know, speaks and poofs His enemies away like blowing out a candle. The word out of the mouth of these lions, these horses with heads like lions, is the judgment that is pronounced against the enemies of God. And here His judgment is final. You you find the same thing in Isaiah 11.4. The Lord judges the earth with the rod of His mouth and slays the wicked with the breath of His lips. And that's where these lion-headed horses' power resides. It's in their mouths. It's in their words because they're, they're symbolic of judgment. They're judging the world. Now, here in chapter 10, the angel, whoever he may be, he comes with a message for the whole world, world to hear. He reads it from the scroll. It's a message from the Lord. And when He does, it rumbles like thunder throughout the world. He has a message that speaks to all the people. And lastly, as we'll see soon, the two witnesses, what do they do? Well, they bear witness. They prophesy. They speak the truth. They proclaim the Word. And the theme of the Word, and especially the Word proclaimed, the truth made known, that's what defines this sixth trumpet. That's, the, that's, that's one of the things that helps us understand what's going on in these passages. The other that helps us understand what's going on is remembering the perspective this cycle is from. This is from the perspective of the wicked. It's from the perspective of those who dwell upon the earth and who will not repent. You put those two things together and you have the point. These passages... The sixth trumpet is showing us how a wicked world interacts with the truth. It's showing us the effect of the truth of the preached word of God on the hearts and on the dispositions of his enemies. And so when the lion army came, they spoke the word in condemnation. It came in judgment on the enemies of God and on the slayers of his people, but they would not repent. You know, some people hear the, the Word like that, don't they? They hear it, and they understand it, but they defy it. The Word comes to them, but it comes in judgment. It condemns. You know, when the Bible says the soul that sins will die, it means it. When the Bible calls adultery or divorce or lying or theft or coveting sin, it means it. And people might deny this. They might defy it. They might rage against it. But that doesn't change the verdict. That's one of the effects that the Word, that the the truth has on the wicked. It condemns them. Now our our passage here presents another effect of the Word on the worldly. Chapter 10 begins with a, a titanic angel. He has a message for all of the inhabitants of the earth but they don't receive it as condemnation. In fact, when the Word comes to them, they don't receive it really at all. So what do you mean? Well, this messenger, clearly he's bringing a message from the Lord into the world. He has the scroll symbolic of the will of God. His size indicates the scope of his message. It's for everyone to hear. And when he speaks, his voice is loud as thunder riding across the land. There's a message that is supposed to be heard, which is why the command that is given to John is so strange. He's told, seal up what you hear. Why? Why would the angel speak and then John conceal? Especially in a book called Revelation. Well, the answer is simple. The message is for everyone to hear, but the message is not for everyone to understand. It's for everyone to hear, but it's not for everyone to understand. John understands it, but apparently its meaning is hidden from its intended audience. And before you say, well, that doesn't seem fair, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, well, realize this is actually far more common in Scripture than you think. In Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies to the people, and God tells him, you're going to go to the people, Isaiah, and hearing, they will not hear. Romans 11:8, quoting what God said to Isaiah, why why did they hear and not hear? God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. God concealed the truth from them. In Luke 8:10, Jesus, he's teaching in parables, teaching in parables so that so you wonder, why is Jesus teaching in parables? So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Same thing in Mark 4. So why does Jesus speak in parables? It's not actually to make things easier to understand. We, we think that's the reason. Well, it's good illustrations. It's, it's not the reason. He speaks in parables to make things difficult to understand, if not impossible. Impossible, that is, unless the Spirit of God reveals the meaning, which is what the Bible says in Matthew 13.13. 13. The knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom have been given to you. Given to you, Jesus says to His disciples, but not to them. So you ask Jesus, why, did they, why do you understand the parables and other people don't? The Spirit has given it to you and it hasn't given it to them. So you have a group of people in the world who hear the Word of God and who understand it and believe it. And the reason why they understand and believe is because it was given to them. And there's a group of people in the world who hear the Word and they do not understand it and they do not believe it because God has not given it to them or revealed it to them. You say, why does God then hide the meaning of the message from some? And the reason is, we're told, because soon the seventh trumpet will sound. Judgment is coming. Seventh trumpet without delay. And you might say, well, that doesn't make sense. If judgment is coming, then they need to hear the message and they need to understand it so that they can escape. Well, that's true. But that's not the point being made here. Many, and we know this, many will hear, many have heard. And have not escaped the judgment because they will not believe, because they did not believe. This happens. And God knows, God knows who are, who are His. God knows who will believe. He reveals the truth to them, but to those who refuse and to those who will never come. I mean, there are people who will never come. And if God is God, if God is all knowing, omniscient, then He knows who these people are. Calvinists and Arminians, we can both agree on this. God knows who will believe and who will not believe. If He didn't, He wouldn't know all things. John 6.4, 6, it says, Jesus knew from the beginning who did not believe. And knowing this, knowing this, hiding the truth from those who will not believe is an act of mercy. It's an act of mercy. I remember once I was uh, driving a delivery vehicle for the home hardware in my hometown, and it was a cab-over truck that was imported from a vegetable farm in Ohio. And uh, being an American-made truck, the speedometer had miles on the outside, and on the inside were kilometers an hour. And so I got used to driving this truck all summer looking at the kilometers an hour on the inside and uh, you know, after a few weeks, I'd gotten in my vehicle, my car, I had to go somewhere, and I thought, man, everyone is driving really slow today. This is a 90 zone, and they're barely going 60. Now, of course, that was true. They were barely going 60, but not kilometers an hour. <laughs> they were barely going 60 miles an hour, and I've been looking at the inside circle on the speedometer of my Canadian-made car, and I was not driving 90 kilometers an hour, but uh, slightly over 90 miles an hour and wondering why everyone else was going so slow. Now, fortunately, I realized this and I slowed down. But had I been pulled over, I would have gotten a ticket. There's no doubt in my mind. No police officer would just let me go, having driven 60 over the limit. But if he heard my reason... And if he believed me that I truly didn't understand how fast I was going, he might be lenient. Why? Well, because we're held accountable for what we know. And though ignorance cannot absolve a crime, I should have known, it can reduce the sentence. And this isn't to say that people will be able to make excuses before the Lord but they will be held accountable for what they know. And one of the reasons Jesus spoke in parables was yes, so that His people would hear and understand and grow and be strengthened, but He spoke in a way to conceal the truth for those who would not repent, and He was doing it to be merciful to them. Merciful to those who would not understand and then not understanding would not be held accountable for that knowledge and not being accountable would not be judged so severely. And so sometimes the Lord hides the truth from those who are perishing to make their perishing less severe. Not everyone's going to be judged the same. And so parables parables are a blessing to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, while at the same time are a judgment and a mercy, a judgment and a mercy on those who will not believe the gospel. Now, a person may hear them and be confused by them and come to faith later on, but that's not what we're talking about here. These trumpets are from the perspective of those who will not believe ever. And so, one of the ways the world receives the word is with confusion and perplexity followed by a a ready dismissal. The meaning is hidden from them. And so John cannot write it down. But he is told to do something with the message. He's told to take the scroll and to eat it. Clearly, this is a reference to Ezekiel 3. And in that chapter, Ezekiel is given a scroll. It's the Word of the Lord, and he's told to eat it. And just as it is with John, it is sweet like honey in his mouth. Because the Gospel and the Word and the truth is sweet to God's people. It's the Word we believe by faith. It's it's the hope in which we are saved. It gives us life. It gives us forgiveness. It gives us direction. The word and the good news is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and we don't know what we would do without it, do we? It's sweet to us. So then why does it turn bitter in his stomach? You wonder, what is bitter about this? Listen, I don't, I don't think there's a single person in this room who has not had their stomach at one time or another in knots because the word of God is not cherished in the land. I mean, who has not been made sick when the Word of God or when the truth, obvious truth, right and wrong, is disregarded or despised? You know, I think of Psalm 119, 136, My eyes stream, shed streams of tears because your law is not obeyed. Few things are more bitter than seeing the Word and the truth that you love, the way that you know leads to life. Few things are more bitter than seeing that totally despised by those who need to hear it most. This is why in Ezekiel, he's given the scroll in the first place. Yes, it's sweetness to him, It was, uh, but it wasn't just sweetness to Ezekiel. It was a message he was supposed to give to others. It wasn't to keep it to Himself. He was to proclaim it. And that's exactly the same situation here in Revelation 10. A people who will not hear the Word. He's given a Word to proclaim. John is. And people will not hear it. So let me just read what, what the Lord says to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 3. He says, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with My words to them. So He's eaten the scroll. It's sweet. Now, because He has the Word, He's got something to do. Verse 7. Ezekiel 3, But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you for they are not willing to listen to Me. They have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. God says I'm going to make you as stubborn for the truth as they are against it. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks for they are a rebellious house. Don't worry about how they look at you or how they think about you. Don't be afraid of them. Moreover, He said to Me, Son of man, all My words that I shall speak to you receive in your heart and hear with your ears and go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them and say, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or they refuse. And so you see the picture here. The message of God, the, the Gospel and the truth, it goes far and wide throughout the land and it is sweet to the people of God. And it is despised and ignored and misunderstood by the worldly. And that does make you bitter in heart, doesn't it? I mean, you ever wonder, why why won't so-and-so see the wisdom of the Word? Why won't they do something about their sin? I mean, don't they understand? Don't they know? Isn't it obvious It's a common Christian experience. You know people who need the truth and hear the truth but will not believe the truth. And it amazes you and it pains you, especially when you know the goodness of God and His worthiness to be praised and the great danger those who reject Him are in. And yet they go on in their stubbornness and it's a bitter thing to endure. But we're not to give up. And we're not to give in. We're not to keep our mouths shut and say, well, they won't believe, then I'm not going to speak. No. Whether they hear or they refuse. No matter how obstinate our audience is, we proclaim the truth. Just like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and John. Just like Eliza and Moses did in their day. And just like the two witnesses in chapter 11 who are a vision of the word being preached in a hostile world. Chapter 11, verse 1, we see that hostility in action. We see the response to the truth from those who dwell upon the earth. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod, given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to My two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the day of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit we will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because... These two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days of a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, "'Come up here!' And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe soon is to come. Well, much has been made in this passage about the measuring of the temple. Is it a real temple? Is it a spiritual temple? Is it a physical one in Jerusalem? Why are the outer courts given to the nations? Now, the picture is very simple. The temple, as the entire New Testament teaches, without exception, is the people of God. And the nations... In this case God's enemies are trampling the courtyard. You have something similar mentioned in Daniel 8 and Zechariah 12, but probably most directly Jesus speaks of Jerusalem being trampled underfoot by the nations in Luke 21:24. Now let me let me spare you the technicalities of this and just get to the point. This is a picture of God's faithful, the sanctuary, in the sanctuary, being surrounded and besieged by her enemies. But again, this is from the perspective of the worldly. And so the question this is answering really is how does the world see the church? How does the world see the Word? How does the world see the truth? And the answer is surrounded on all sides, besieged, and with their time running out. Soon the so-called truth will be nothing but a phantom of the past. That was the attitude toward the early church. And it's the same attitude that faces the church now. Today the church, the the temple, the people. Do we look like an army on the advance or like a city under siege? Ask a stranger on the street, is the world, is the church advancing or is the church surrounded? Has it become a, a useless thing in the eyes of the world or worse, a, a tool of oppression? No, the world around us hates the Word and hates those who uphold it. And this is demonstrated by the two witnesses. Again, much has been made about these two men, but thankfully, this is one of the spots in the book of Revelation where we're told exactly what the symbol means. The two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. It's helpful, right? It's a reference to Zechariah 4 where there's a lamp that is burning and it does not go out because it's hooked up to an olive tree. It's a light that will not fail to shine because it is connected with the source. And in Zechariah, it's a picture of, of the church, of a, of a people who are filled with the Spirit. And so they are filled, because they're filled with the Spirit, they do not fail to shine in the world around them. And so these witnesses are filled with the Spirit that enables them to be lights in the world. And you can see maybe where this is going. Now, how else are these witnesses described? They prophesy. They have power to turn water into blood and to stop the rain from falling and power to unleash plagues. And, and obviously, these witnesses are to, to make us think of Moses and Elijah. Now, what does, what does it mean? Does that mean that Moses and Elijah are going to return at the end? Right, is this the coming of Elijah that the Jews wait for to a literal temple, literally breathing out fire against his enemies? Is is that what's happening here, as as some of our dear brothers have interpreted this passage to mean? Well, I don't think so. This is Moses, the giver of the law, and Elijah, the prophet. And these two men are symbolic of the Law and the Prophets, which in the early church and in the mouth of the Lord Jesus meant one thing. It meant the Bible. It meant the Word of God. And so here is a picture of Spirit-empowered preaching. And and not just preaching, but the upholding of the truth. The upholding of the Word, of the Scriptures. It's It's a vision of what happens to those who faithfully uphold and live by and press the truth of the Word of God upon a sinful, unrepentant people. Or more accurately, it is the response of a worldly, sinful people to the Word of God being pressed upon them. And I want to bring three points out of this passage. The first is that they minister until their time is complete. Verse 7, They are untouchable until they finish their testimonies. What's that mean for us? It means the church has a job to do. And that job will be done. Do you see that? This is a, a comforting thing for believers, isn't it? It's a comforting word to the church that is surrounded by a world and besieged. How often do you worry about the condition of the church? You know, it's going to be snuffed out. Or you worry about your own life and your ministry that God has called you to. You can be sure that God will accomplish through you everything He has for you. And He will secure His church and keep them till the end. The fact, the, the simple fact is that you and I, the church, we are invincible until the Lord says otherwise. Nothing can assail you or derail you that does not come from God. And when it comes, it comes at the appointed hour and the appropriate time. No ministry ever fails outside of God's decree and no ministry can fail until His testimony is complete. For the church and for the believer, listen, it is always mission accomplished. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from His hand. They can't even touch you until God's work for you is done. Nothing can thwart God's plan. All the world can do is rage, but can do nothing until the Lord allows. But then we also see in this passage our vulnerability, don't we? We're vulnerable to the assaults of a hostile world. It's ironic in a way, isn't it? As, as Christians, we're totally invincible until the Lord in His wisdom and love says otherwise. We cannot be touched by our enemies as we minister in the world until the Lord hands us over for some wise reason for our good to be shut down or mistreated or imprisoned or killed. The problem arises when, for Christians when our plan for the future and God's plan for the future don't align. Because we wouldn't do what God does next in this passage. I mean, if we were in charge, it would be total victory all the time, not one step back. But that's not what happens. And it's not what happens in the world. And it's not what happens in our own experience. And it's not what happens in history. Certainly not. Here in this passage, a new character crawls out of the locust pit a notorious character in the book of Revelation. It's a beast. And the beast makes war on the faithful and they're conquered and they're killed. Many times the world does this, doesn't it? This isn't an end times event only. It's something that has happened before when the church seemed to be surrounded and then destroyed. You say, does that happen? Oh, yes. At one time... Egypt and Turkey were centers of the Christian world. And they were centers of the Christian world for about 500 years. 80% of Anatolia, that's modern Turkey, were Christians. 80% of all of the people who lived there, 8 out of 10. Now, if you were to go to that country, you might find 8,000 evangelical Christians in the whole place. went from 80% to .001%. Why does God do this? I don't know. In communist China. I don't know if you know this or not, but early in the 1900s, the influence of the church and of Christianity was so strong in China that their educational system was going to use the Chinese translation of Pilgrim's Progress to teach people to read. They were moving toward becoming a a Christian nation much like the United States were at their founding. And yet, God had other plans and the communists severely weakened the church and her influence in the land. It was the same thing in the Soviet Union. Only a fool would say that the church is stronger in Eastern Europe today than it was before communist domination. It's not stronger today. The truth is, sometimes the church, for certain, in certain regions for reasons known only to God, it's sent into retreat. Until that time, invincible, and once that time comes, apparently conquered. How does the world respond to this? Point two, what does the world think of the truth? They hate it. They hate the preaching of the Word. They hate the example of Christians. They hate it so much that they rejoice and they celebrate when the truth is silenced, don't they? This is why, by the way, when you, maybe you're in the workplace, you hear a dirty joke, you don't laugh. People don't think, oh, I wonder why I didn't find that joke funny. And then they get on with things. That's, that's not what they do. What do they do? They get angry. Maybe they get a little bit hostile. They might call you names or turn their noses up at you. Do you know why they do that? It's because when you refuse to laugh, sin was exposed. And they were confronted with the truth that the fact they found what they said funny reveals something dark and sinister about them. And they were exposed. And sinners who love their sin hate being exposed. And nothing exposes that like the truth. Anyone who's regularly speaking about the truth or preaching the Gospel to others... You, you know this, don't you? There are times when the person you are talking to gets angry enough, you think that they might kill you if the law of the land didn't restrain them. And if you, if you doubt this, uh, you think, that's a bit much. I don't really think that's the case. Well, how is a biblical society, how would that be portrayed in the media? You ever seen one of those dystopian movies or uh, an advertisement for one, like uh, The Handmaiden's Tale? Now, of course, it's not what a society based on the Scriptures would look like. It's not. But it is how the world thinks it would be. And believers need to reckon with this. The world thinks that our ways and our morality and the truth, not our truth, but the truth, Leads only to oppression and evil where everything is gray and guards patrol the streets beating and savaging anyone who steps out of line. This is how the world looks at the church. This is how the world may even think of you. The word is a torment to them. The truth is a torture. Have you ever lived in an age where people felt tormented when they were told the truth? You ever lived in an age where people were offended when they heard the truth? You ever lived in a time when people rejoiced, when righteous laws were struck down? They groan when sin might be restrained. They laugh to scorn anyone who would say, right is wrong and wrong is right. Can you imagine living amongst a people like this? You should be able to imagine it because you do. People really do hate the light. We don't like to think that way, but it's true. It's a testimony of Scripture over and over again, and it's clear the world hates the truth and anyone who upholds it. Which is why when these witnesses are killed, their bodies are put on display and the entire world rejoices. They have a celebration. It's like Christmas. Christmas. They look at the truth. They see that the messengers of truth are, are slain, they're dead, and it brings them unceasing joy. Free, free at last, they think. They start giving gifts to one another. They're so jubilant and celebratory. You ever been sharing the Gospel with somebody and when you're done, they're noticeably relieved? I mean, visibly, they're happy that they're not going to be subjected to the truth anymore? That's, that's the heart underlying this. And again, we don't often see it this way. People don't generally get that hostile and rejoice when you go away. Now, they're restrained. Either because of common grace or because of pride they want to be thought well of or or on account of societal convention, you know, they should tolerate you or, or for some other reason. But ultimately, this is the attitude of the godless towards the truth. They do not want to hear it. And those who bring it, risk being struck down but it's not the end because the church isn't defeated and in a way this is a setup for judgment isn't it because they were denying the truth turning a deaf ear to the truth re- rejoicing against the truth killing the messengers of the truth they thought they were free from the truth you no know, we silenced them all it's not a lamp left in the land, and then the witnesses are restored and the people realize they will be judged by the truth. And this, this passage here is not about the reanimation of the corpses of two old men in Jerusalem. This is a reminder to the church. This is a point three. It's a reminder to the church, to those who bear witness to the truth that they are like Christ and will be treated like Christ. Just as Jesus was resurrected, so are His witnesses. Us, the church, we will be. Just as He ministered for three and a half years, so His witnesses ministered for three and a half years. In the same way, His ministry lasted until His time was fulfilled and His mission was complete, so the church ministers until their time is fulfilled and their mission is complete. Just as Jesus died in Jerusalem, so the church is killed in Jerusalem. Now, not literally, of course, but Jerusalem has become like Sodom or like Egypt, we're told in verse 8. Jerusalem's not the holy city anymore. That's the new Jerusalem. Old Jerusalem has become a a picture of those who oppress Christ and oppress His people. I mean, nowhere in the ancient world, nowhere in the first century, was more hostile to the early church than Jerusalem. And just as Jerusalem was hostile to Christ, the world is hostile to His people. He was opposed to for being the truth. We are opposed for standing on the truth. He was hated for righteousness' sake. We are despised for righteousness' sake. He was killed and His enemies rejoiced. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. He was raised after three days and at the time of His ascension ascended to the heavens in a cloud. And likewise, so will all His witnesses be raised and taken to be with Him. And so you see, this is not so much a matter of precise Time stamps, which is what people get hung up on here. But those times are meant to turn our mind to Christ because the third point is that the faithful, truth-upholding, gospel-preaching people of God will be treated like Christ was treated. A hostile world will treat God's people like they treated Him. Of course, He's told us this already, hasn't He? If they hated Me, they'll hate you, John 15.18. If the Master is despised, what will become of His disciples? Matthew 10. We will be like Christ in His glory and in His humiliation. Now sometimes you, uh, sometimes you hear really well-intentioned but naive believers talk about what it means to be a Christian and they say, you know, if we just, if we just loved like Christ loved, the world would see Christ and they'd repent and they'd believe. No. If we loved like Christ and were like Christ and the world saw us, they would crucify us. Because when they saw Christ, that's what they did. And the more you become like Christ, apart from the grace of God at work in the world, that is how the world will respond to you and to the truth and to those who believe and uphold it. And yes, some of the people who see these witnesses, they do give glory to the God of heaven. But even this is not an incredibly encouraging commitment, is it? It doesn't say they repented, which is what they were called to in chapter 9. It doesn't say that they believed, though I'm sure some did. But it says they were terrified, and so they gave glory to the God of heaven. They realize He is God, maybe even fear Him, but do they believe? I don't think so. And I don't think so because of a, of a contrast made here between the world and the church. In the book of Amos, a remnant of the faithful is going to be preserved from the exile, and it's a a tenth of all the people. One tenth. And when Elijah is distraught, thinking he's alone and he's the only one left, the Lord tells him what? I have preserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And what do those remnants represent? Those tenth and the 7,000? They're a promise. Though they were the Lord's assurance that even though things looked bad, and even though the plight of the faithful seemed like it was coming to an end, and even though the wicked were prospering, these people were a reminder that God would keep all of those who belonged to Him. There would always be a faithful witness, and His kingdom would not fail. Ever. Well, here in verse 13, it's the opposite. There is a tenth in the city killed and 7,000 slain. This is a promise too. It's a promise that all of those who assault the church and do not believe the truth and are dwelling on the earth will meet the same end as those who were killed. The Lord will not work for their deliverance, but for their destruction. And even though it looks like they're prospering, even though it looks like they're in the ascent, even though it looks like they will be victorious, they will fall. They're, they're not going to make it. And just as this faithful remnant reminds us that God will build His kingdom and save and deliver us, this destroyed people reminds those who dwell upon the earth that God will tear their kingdom down and condemn them, which is exactly what happens in the final woe. Verse 15, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And when you hear this trumpet blast and you think what's so bad about that? <laughs> this is a final victory of the lord. This is what we've been waiting for all this time and it is it's a it's a joy, it's the hope of god's people. But again, remember these trumpets, these instruments of war and judgment are not blown for the church they are sounded against God's enemies. They're against those who will not believe. And if you have aligned yourself with darkness and despise the Lord and rejoice over the silencing of the truth, if that's where you are, then wouldn't the worst conceivable possible outcome for your life, in the end, be the Lord coming back and knocking down that kingdom you aligned yourself with forever, and taking it as His own, taking you as His own. It's a face. It's a fate worse than death. I mean, let me let me give you an example. You wonder how is this a woe to the wicked? Let me tell you. You maybe you remember when Donald Trump was elected in two thousand and sixteen. And I don't too much care what you think of Him. That's not my point. I'm not comparing Him to Christ either, so don't misunderstand me. But when He was elected, listen, what happened on that night and the next morning? There were people weeping and wailing in anguish. It was described in the news as a time of mourning for the nation. It was described as a time of fear and great despair. Uh, People had total meltdowns. People were in utter disbelief. Some even said on national television in America, this is the end of the world. This is like waking up in hell. That's what they said. Others, the the light of this country has gone dark. That was the reaction that the people had to, to a man, a president who they didn't want in charge. And really... You know, He changed some things, but He didn't change that much. Well, how much greater the woe on a wicked world when Christ comes and claims His rightful throne without any say from anyone? I mean, you know what the reaction will be. The whole world will rise up in defiance. Uh, Before they can lift their fists in the air, they'll be struck down and wiped away like crumbs from a dish. And it will be waking up in hell. And it will be the end of the world. And the light really will go out for them. It will be a time of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. No wonder it is described as a terrible woe for those who dwell upon the earth. But in verse 16 onward, this coming kingdom is what the church, the faithful rejoice in, isn't it? Listen to what it says. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but Your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding Your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear Your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth." Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of His covenant was seen within the temple and there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. God's people rejoice. The wicked mourn. Because the same thing happened. Do you know that God is able at the same time to judge the wicked and bless His people? It's exactly what happens here, isn't it? What do you look forward to more than anything? The coming of Christ. What does the lost world dread more than anything? The coming of Christ. What is your great hope? That you will stand before the Lord. What is the great fear of the wicked? That they will stand before the Lord. What do you look forward to? What do you want? What do you pray? Your kingdom come. What's the world around you say? Your kingdom stay back. You see in this passage, a great hope and reason why you as a believer do not need to be afraid of any of the judgments unleashed on this world and why the worldly are the ones who need to fear them. Not just in the end, not just the day of the day of the Lord judgment, but all of the judgments. You know the word crisis? Is the Greek word krisis? And is the word in Greek that means judgment? And whenever we talk about crisis, where that word comes from, it means judgment, breaking into time. That's a crisis. And when those things come in this world, God is able at the same time to punish the ungodly and exalt the faithful. Let me give you an example. When a, when a war or a calamity comes, it's a terrible thing. It's a judgment on the world. It tears away all of the things that people hope and trust in. It, it takes the comforts that they've clung to and they watch them crumble. But for the Christian, what's the effect? It weans you off of this world and makes the, world, uh, makes the Lord all the sweeter, doesn't it? And if the economy collapsed and your standard of living was half of what it used to be, listen, would that matter? if it meant that the church was able to flourish in the land. Sometimes the Lord brings these catastrophic events to take the pressure off His people. He brings these things to answer the prayers of His people when a natural disaster comes or a famine or or war or whatever. I mean, people, especially governments, unless they are exceptionally evil, they aren't thinking about how to persecute the church. They aren't thinking about how to silence the truth. They aren't thinking about how to legislate what is evil and forbid what is good. They may want to, but other matters are far more pressing and demanding of their attention. And so the Lord answers the prayers of His people that they may lead quiet and peaceful lives dignified in every way by bringing His enemies into crisis. And which of us here, if we had the option? right? You've got to choose a relatively comfortable life with, uh, with persecution, or a life where there was trial and trouble in almost every arena, but the church is flourishing, or, or at least is unhindered and free to be the church. Which one are you going to choose? I think every one of us here would easily forego comfort and choose the flourishing of the church. Well, that's what God often does with plagues and wars and famines when they come. So you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Worst case scenario for the Christian, you go to be with the Lord. Maybe that's the best case scenario depending on how you look at it. But the alternative is you stay here and shine as a light. I mean, what loss is there? Where where is the room for despair about the future? There isn't any room for it because there isn't any reason for despair. No, we, we don't need to be afraid no matter how the nations rage. You shine as a light and glorify God here on earth or you go to heaven and be with Him. No loss. No, the Lord will keep His people. He'll keep each and every one of us until exactly our appointed time. And when that time comes, it will come at the best possible time and we will go to be with Him forever. Death loses its sting. The grave loses its victory. Suffering becomes a badge of honor and we can live fearlessly and unafraid in a world that trembles. Listen, brothers and sisters, we have a lot to be thankful for in Christ. So let us uphold the truth and let us preach the Word and let us live boldly according to His promises and our great hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Christ. Thank You for Your salvation and Your Spirit. Thank You that nothing can pluck us from Your hands. Absolutely nothing. That in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And I pray, Lord, that You would be with everyone in this room, that You would increase their faith. That, God, they would be able to laugh in the face of disaster because they are fixated on You. Lord, give us that kind of faith, I pray. Strengthen Your people. I pray that You would use these words this morning to to work that in them. That our testimony would be a testimony of of fearlessness in a world that is so anxious about so many things. Help us, Lord, to shine like lights. To shine like lights with our actions and with our words. To love the truth, to uphold the truth. Whether people hear it or not. Whether they repent or we are despised. Lord, we are yours. And You are ours. And You are all that we need. It's in Your name we pray. It's in Your name we rejoice. Amen.